Limited. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 17. And if you would, just go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for this opportunity we have today to gather together and to hear from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's not the message I, you might expect to hear, but it's a message that's being said nonetheless. You better find somewhere else to go. If all you want to do is get drunk, do drugs, and have sex. Stay out is the message from the city of Amsterdam as they try to clean up the infamous red light district. According to an article recently in the Wall Street Journal, Amsterdam's government is launching a campaign and it's literally titled Stay Out. And it's aimed at tourists who go wild during their visits. I'm just sort of helping them out with the PSA here. I feel like this is a group that needs to hear this. Tourists who go wild during their visits, the city has proposed rules in its infamous red light district, such as a ban on smoking marijuana in the street, reduced alcohol sales, and earlier weekend closing times for bars, clubs, and sex work establishments. Believe it or not, the government of Amsterdam says that tourists looking to let loose are taking it too far and harming the quality of life for residents. Don't call it a comeback. Baptists have been here for years. And so we, uh, big surprise that this is not going so well for the people who are actually trying to live in Amsterdam. One of the greatest lies in our world and one of the easiest lies to believe is that absolute freedom that a total absence of rules, that uninhibited libertarian behavior, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, is a great source for joy. But we know better, don't we? We, we know better than to think that's the case. Guys, one of these days you're going to leave home and all you're thinking about is the fact that you're not going to have rules anymore, right? You're just loving, loving that idea. Be careful not to smile too big. They're sitting out there, okay? Yeah, of course. We all feel that way. It's like the, when I got my first paycheck, I thought, man, I can buy anything I want. 
And then I paid my first bills, and I thought, I can't buy anything. I can barely pay my bills. We know better, don't we? And in fact, the Lord's teaching on righteousness and the church's insistence even on living according to His Word is so often misunderstood. People think it's rooted in a desire for control, it's, or it's just a, the Baptists are being Baptists again, we're just a bunch of fuddy-duddies or something like that. But instead, the church lives strangely. In other words, the church is peculiar. We live according to the Word of God, differently from the way the rest of the world lives, because we believe it's a path to joy. We believe it's the way that God has designed the world to work. And so, by faith, we trust God that His way is better than the way we see for ourselves. It's strange, of course, but even the world, even the red light district of all places, can't live by the world's rules for long without needing to clean things up. What makes the Lord's church so peculiar? What makes us different, or at least ought to make us different? I want to show you three truths this morning. Three truths that I think will help you understand what it means for the church to be peculiar, and that will help us continue to live as a holy people, as a set-apart people here at First Baptist Church. Here's the first point I want you to see this morning. First point is this, the church is secured by the gospel. The church is secured by the gospel. Now, last week we went through what we called the social test. Uh, John's introduction of the test of love for us to think through whether or not the faith that we claim to have is genuinely Christian faith. And it seems like part of what John is trying to do is to be clear that there are false teachers, people who are not preaching and teaching the gospel, who are uh, among those he wrote this letter to. And he's trying to help them see the way that their lack of love means their message isn't true. What he's afraid of is that there are some genuine Christians, so it seems. Perhaps he's afraid that there are some genuine Christians who may start getting a little nervous about whether or not they truly know Jesus. And so he stops for a moment to make it clear that he's not trying to convince everyone who reads his letter that they're not a Christian. In fact, I think 1 John is one of the best letters on Christian assurance that there is. I use it often and have seen it bear much fruit in my own heart and life use it often in counseling for others, but even for myself to think through the fact uh, that I can be assured of my salvation. And so here he's interjecting, I think, a word of encouragement in verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you little children. Throughout this letter, John addresses his hearers as children. Commentators and scholars try to think through different ways to understand this uh, This triple category that Paul introduces, little children, fathers, and young men. Some people think it's three categories. Some people think it's children refers to the whole church, and then he's speaking specifically to young people and older people. I'm really convinced that all three of these categories are for the whole church, for the whole church. Uh, I think at different times and in different ways, all three of these things that Paul says here apply to all of us at different times in our Christian life. So that being said, as you read through this, I hope you'll be reminded Paul is seeking to encourage you. He wants you to see uh, what Jesus has done for you. And so he addresses the little children, he says. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, he says in verse 12. And then in verse 13 again. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because you know 
the Father. And then to the fathers, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. In verse 13 and 14, both times he addresses the fathers, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. That's another reason why I think this is for everyone, because he's already told the little children they know the father. And then again, he tells the fathers that they know him who is from the beginning. Uh, In fact, so often, I I was thinking about this myself, uh, when I was younger, my early days in my faith, I had an easier time understanding God as the one who is from the beginning, right? The, the, the theological understanding of God, the God who is eternal. It's kind of the God I've always understood God to be. It's only been in years of maturation and years of walking with Jesus that I've really begun to even, I think, crack the surface of what it means for God to be my Father. What it means for God to love me as my Father through Christ. So again, I think this is not necessarily meaning only uh, those who are more mature in faith when he addresses the fathers. And then he turns and says to young men, you have overcome the evil one, verse 13. And then again in 14, you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. I think this is a device that John is using to say all of the church, whether you're young, whether you're in middle age, whether you're old, no matter where you are in life, what station you are in life, you can be sure that your security and that your unity comes from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These glorious truths, you can be encouraged by this message. The church is secured by the gospel your sins are forgiven you know the eternal father you are strong he is saying the word of God abides in you you have overcome through Christ the evil one these are all things that are only possible because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross because Jesus has been raised from the dead these are things that only happen through the gospel Nothing else secures us, nothing else unites us but the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, we are not secure because of our moral fiber. We're not secure. Our relationship with God is not secure because of our worldview. It's not secure because of our ability to be decent humans. We are united not by our culture, not by our ethnicity, not because we all agree on key things, Only the gospel, only the gospel secures and unites us. It's strange to the world, but we must continually renew our commitment to be centralized, to be centered on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, first and foremost, our identification with Jesus himself that makes us a peculiar and set-apart people. But second of all, we need to know this, not only... Is the church secured by the gospel? But second of all, the church rejects worldliness. Uh, The church rejects worldliness. I bet you've heard this verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, does anybody know the next word? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, right? Harper knew it. Just so everyone knows, I want to make sure you get credit, Harper. Not only did she know it, I think the rest of them do too, but she was bold enough to say it right in the middle of the sermon. Thank you, Harper, for the help. We have it memorized. Most of us do. So, pardon the pun, what in the world is going on here? Notice what John says in verse 15. Now remember, it's John who told us that Jesus said that. 
It's John who told us these things about the Lord Jesus. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. But notice now what He says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What in the world is going on with this word world here? This is, as we sing in the great hymn, our Father's world. If you read Genesis 1, it says he made the world, and what did he say? It is good. God declared it to be good. John here means, according to the ESV Study Bible, and I think it's a good way to say it, a world system that is opposed to God. In other words, that word world is not always used in an identical sense every time it comes up in the Bible. We have to use context to try to understand what's being said. In other words, when the Bible says God so loved the world, he means the good world he created. It as he made it, right? God loved the world. Despite its sin, God still loves the world. And there are so many aspects and good things about the world that it's good. For, it's not only okay for us to enjoy, but it's good for us to enjoy. It's a good thing to enjoy God's good creation. And yet what we want to do is to be careful not to walk in lockstep and not to participate in this world system that is opposed to God. That is what John is talking about here when he says world is the fallen, sinful, rebellious aspect of God's good world. That is the good structure that God made in the world has gone in the wrong direction. In fact, Let's let John define the world for us. He, he goes on to give us context. Don't be too confused there, sitting out and camping out in verse 15. He goes on in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That is emerging from sinful humanity. We can see the way that these three things are challenges not only for us, but for those around us. We can see the way that the desires of the flesh are consuming our society. You see it through sexualized advertising. You see it through the way that pornography has become commonplace and normal and even beyond accepted, but in many ways celebrated. We can see it through the incessant desire to acquire, to be first, to dominate others. We, there is not a lot of uh, differentiation between our desires and how we behave often. In fact, it's seen as inauthentic or not true to yourself when you try to not act on your desires. And then he goes on to talk not only about the desires of the flesh, but also about the desires of the eyes. There are temptations in the world, things we see before us that we didn't even necessarily know we desired, and yet our eyes lead us in these ways. And then he talks about the pride of life. It seems to carry with it a connotation of that which we possess. We acquire and desire to acquire those things that we need or want, perhaps, and we judge ourselves and others based on what we can acquire, on the pride of life. In other words, what John is critiquing here is a preoccupation with that which can be seen, that which we can feel and enjoy, that which we can see and experience, that which we can touch and possess. That is, it is a preoccupation with the flesh and therefore the visible and therefore the world. Instead, the church is called to live by faith, to reject worldliness, to trust that God's ways are better because that which we cannot see is no less true, is no less real, and certainly no less important than that which flashes before our eyes so regularly, than those desires which pulse in our bodies so regularly, than that pride which we have and that which we can touch, taste, and feel. 
Let's be so careful, brothers and sisters, and reject worldliness even as we enjoy God's good creation. Not only, my friends, do we reject worldliness, not only are we secured by the gospel, but the last point is this. The church lives in light of eternity. The church lives in light of eternity. One thing I've learned about the world over the years at the world is hypnotic. It it, it tends to to hypnotize us. It makes us feel like it will last forever. It, It makes us feel like its opinions represent endless progress, like faith in God is hopelessly out of date. But isn't it strange that the opposite is true? Isn't it strange that though the world makes it seem like those who believe in God and believe in a judgment and believe in the gospel are living in fantasy land, isn't it odd that the opposite is true? Read verse 17 with me. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. One day, this world, all the things that seem so permanent, all these things that we see all the time that are so sleek and so sexy and so attractive, we recognize the world is passing away. The world that's so filled to the brim with things to satisfy our passions and desires, the world is passing away. The world that's so rich with money and power and even things we cannot even dream of attaining. The world is passing away. The things for which we long, the access we wish we had, the glory that seems so out of reach, the world is passing away along with its desire. And then we think about the church. Not just necessarily our church, but the church as a whole. It's shrinking in numbers. It's hopelessly uncool. Except for us, our, our music minister wears t-shirts to lead worship. But <laughs> So out of touch with the times. Bless their hearts, I'm sure the world would say. But never forget this. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't be lulled into the hypnosis that the world gives us. The, the, the strangeness of the church is that we live in light of eternity. When I was a college student, I got to travel to Europe one summer. And one of the most depressing things I experienced was at an art show, in an art gallery. And as I looked at the art, I could not help but be more focused on the gallery in which the art was housed. It was a massive cathedral, gorgeous, beautiful cathedral called the Utekirk, or the Old Church. And since 1213 A.D., it was a place where Jesus had been worshipped in a neighborhood in Amsterdam called the Dewalen neighborhood. But by the time I was there at the art show looking at this church that had now become not, no longer a church, but an art gallery... That neighborhood was no longer called Dewalen or known as Dewalen or even known as the Utekirk plots, the area around the old church. By now, it had been called the Red Light District. And it was so depressing for me and saddening for me to see the way that Christianity was eroding even as the Red Light District was flourishing. It, It was crushing 
to see this remarkable edifice that was now being used as an art gallery in the middle of a neighborhood where you could walk by a window that has Peking duck hanging in the window to be bought and eaten right next door to a window where a young woman is trying to sell her body to the next John that passes by. But things aren't always as they seem. And the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ is at work even when we can't see it. And there will be a day, even if our church buildings crumble to dust, even if the day comes, God forbid, that First Baptist Church of Gadsden is an art gallery, even, even in those cases, there will be a day when the Savior of the world Indeed, the one who came to save even tax collectors and, yes, prostitutes. A day is coming where that Lord and Savior will reign over every square inch of His world. And so long as by faith you are united to Him, you are not on the wrong side of history. You are not confused about reality. You are not soothing yourself with an imaginary best friend. You are not out of touch with the times. No, you are walking by faith and it allows you to see a world that's dying in the way that God sees it so that you can reach out and hold on by faith to the only one who can save us. Do not be afraid, brothers and sisters. Do not be scared. Do not be troubled to be a peculiar people. The world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, it would be my joy today to introduce you to my friend, to my Savior, to my Lord, Jesus Christ. I, I believe if you would turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, you will be saved. 